Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on BlogTalkRadio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you've just clicked the link on my webpage or you're listening on BlogTalkRadio.com or even the BlogTalkRadio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Jacob Ipp was forced into the Kovno Ghetto, a concentration camp of Nazi Germany, with his family at only age six. He and his mother were the only two people to survive of 5,000 deported for execution one day. After escaping with his parents in 1943, they had to hide nine months in a potato hole in the countryside. Ipp endured bleak post-war conditions until the family immigrated via Munich to Richmond, Virginia, when he was 12. The Ipp family arrived in the U.S. on June 12, 1947. His father, Israel, who had been an attorney in Lithuania, found work cleaning bathrooms in a gas station. His mother, Edna, worked as a seamstress in a department store. 
to make their integration into the society easier, they decided to change their family's name into Ibsen. J. M. Ibsen graduated from the Thomas Jefferson High School and attended the University of Richmond. He joined the United States Army Reserve in 1954, serving as an instructor in the Judge Advocate General's Corps. He was honorably discharged at the rank of sergeant after eight years of service. A skilled aviator, Ibsen ascended to the rank of full colonel in the Virginia Defense Force Aviation Brigade, serving as its commander from 1988 to 1992. As owner of American Auto Parts in Hopwell, Ibsen was active in the Anti-Defamation League and frequently spent his mornings giving talks at local schools about the Holocaust. A friend suggested that he should establish a museum to let people learn more from him. After a discussion with leaders at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and with the backing from financial and legislative leaders, the Virginia Holocaust Museum was born. The story of his family is told in Nancy Wright Beasley's Izzy's Fire, but today, on A Measure of Truth, we are honored to have with us a slice of history, Izzy's son, Jay Ibsen. Welcome to A Measure of Truth. Thank you, Michael. Actually, I've got one correction. We were nine months in hiding and six months under a potato field. My father, it took him three months working nights with his hands to dig out our hiding place. Wow. And uh, it's really, you know, uh, a very appropriate day today. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the thing that is so appropriate that Osama bin Laden has just been executed, and his body was dumped in the sea. Fifty years ago, the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the largest murderer in all the world, who is mostly responsible for killing six million Jews, was put on trial in Jerusalem. Ultimately, he was found guilty. He was hung, and his ashes were scattered in the sea. Mm. Exactly wow. the same kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Now, Israel normally does not give capital punishment, but in this particular case, the only case that a murderer was put to death. And tell us a little bit, Jay, about the holiday that was just um, passed on yesterday. Well, this was part of it at the uh, Virginia Holocaust Museum. For the last three days, we commemorated the remembrance of the Holocaust. That was Sunday. But prior to that, we had Justice Bach, from who was the prosecutor on the Eichmann trial, and we've got an exhibit, in our, uh, the only one right now that I know of, of the Eichmann trial, an exhibit on the walls in the museum. Wow. Uh, and we had a uh, large attendance where Holocaust survivors lit candles in memory of the six million, as well as candles were lit by handicapped per people, who were also persecuted by the Nazis, and gay and lesbians, and we also had the participation 
of the black community who is now establishing the slave trail here in Richmond. There are a lot of similarities between the two communities as history marches on. Mm, absolutely. And um, tell us a little bit about what people can see at this, this exhibit that you just spoke of. Well, when, when you come to see the Eichmann exhibit, you will see the whole Eichmann trial from the beginning to its end and the people that participated, including uh, one individual that was taken out of a guest chamber. He was already destined to be guest, but he was taken out in order to help unload some potatoes that came in for the Nazi guards, and they didn't have enough people to unload them, so they took a young man out from the guest chamber. Ultimately, that saved his life. Wow. And back to your story. Now, this all started for you when you were only six years old. Tell us a little bit about what you remember. Unfortunately, my memories are very vivid. Mm. I was six years old. Well, let, let, let's go back a little bit. Okay. Let's start with the Germans and the Russians making a non-aggression pact. Hitler wanted to conquer the world, but he was not afraid of the United States, no Great Britain. He was afraid of the Russians. The largest populous military group was the Russians in Europe. So he made a non-aggression pact with, Hitler, uh, with Stalin, saying, hey, you don't attack me, I don't attack you, we can be friends. Well, Stalin was just as devious as Hitler, and he said, what's in it for me? So Hitler said, well, we'll divide up Europe. You take Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and part of Poland, and I'm going to take the other part. Well, the two of them made a deal, and in 1940, the Russians came into Lithuania. Of course, in 1939, the war started with Poland and uh, the Germans. And what did the world do about it? Absolutely nothing. So a year later, Hitler said, what do I need Stalin for? Nobody's going to stop me. Hmm. So he attacked the Russians. My father was a brilliant individual, and he had foreseen, because we had already heard from Polish Jews escaping Poland what was happening in Poland. So he told, came home with a horse and buggy and told my mother, we're going to run with the Russians. At least we're going to be alive. Mm. I had a little six-month-old sister at the time. We got in the buggy. We started running. And the roads were crowded. People were walking. With People were pulling wagons. You, you've seen those battle scenes in the movies, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. of the crowded roads. And that's where we were. And all of a sudden, the Germans dropped paratroopers in front of us, cutting off our escape. Hmm. We were told to go back where we came from. When we came back, our Lithuanian neighbors, led by the Lithuanian priest Jankuskas, were massacring the Jews in the street. Hmm. They dragged Jews to a place known as Litukas Garage, a huge service station. 
and in that service station, they clubbed and beat Jews to the to the ground, doused them with water hoses in their cavities, making them to, to blow up like balloons, doused them with gasoline and burned them alive. And mm. the Lithuanian were standing on the sidewalk cheering like at a football game and singing the Lithuanian national anthem. The, by the way, he escaped to the United States and lived in New Jersey. And OSI, Office of Special Investigations from Washington, from the uh, Criminal Division, Justice Department rather, deported him to Lithuania and when he came to Lithuania, they put him on pension, and nothing was done with him. Really? Now, when did this take place? When was he deported then? A few years ago. Just a few years ago? That's right. Out of 127 Nazis and Nazi sympathizers that were, these, uh, the citizenship was taken away and deported, 27 of them were Lithuanians. Hmm. So, when we came back to our home shortly after coming back we were told that we had to move into a ghetto the Germans said it was for our protection and it was going to be a barbed wire compound with the Jews living in the ghetto now the a ghetto is the same as a concentration camp people don't understand they think right. they're two different things they're not, they're one and the same the difference between a ghetto is it's for the local populace. A concentration camp is where they bring people from other areas into the ghetto. Mm. In both places, do they starve you? In both places, they work you to death. And in both places, they kill you. Mm -hmm. How many calories a day does the average healthy American eat or should eat? Well, I'm not sure, but I would guess around at least five, 6,000 calories. No, 2,000. 2,000 2, 2, 2, to 2,500 in the athletic shape, you know, those that are slim and trim and good-looking. The rest of us eat a little more. Now, that's a day. In a ghetto, we were given 934 calories for a whole week. Wow. Now, what are, what's 934 calories? Three ounces of beef, less than a quarter pounder. Four ounces of flour. Four ounces of salt. Three ounces of beans. And 22 slices of bread. That amounts to 934 calories for a whole week. Hmm. Then, once we got into the ghetto... I was fortunate because the very first house right next to the fence of the ghetto was that of my grandparents, my mother's parents. It was a three-room house for a family of five. Sixteen of us ended up living in it. Then on October 31st, 1941, the Germans told everybody, 27,000 of us, to come out to Democratic Square. It was a big field. There, we stood in front of a German sergeant, and he asked, 
What is your job, then, Jew? What is your profession? And anybody that's a white-collar worker, such as a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, a uh, rabbi, an accountant, you and your whole family were sent to his left, and in one night, 10,500 men, women, and children were executed on the ninth fort. Hmm. It was a fortif- military fortification that the Lithuanians had built to protect themselves from the Russians, and on the other side of Lithuania was from the Poles. 4,226 children were executed. When Raka came to my father and asked him his profession, my father didn't know why but he told him he was a car mechanic. Now, you had just mentioned my father's profession. He was an attorney. Right. Mm-hmm. And when he said he was a car mechanic, they told him to take his whole family and everybody lined up. My father's parents, my uh, mother's parents, some, everybody lined up behind my father, all relatives. And we all went home and survived that selection. Wow. The very next morning, a German came with a rifle. He said he was looking for the car mechanic. Mm -hmm. My father spoke six languages fluently, amongst them German, and he told him he was the car mechanic. They took him to the airport, which was about four miles, or actually four kilometers away from the ghetto, took him to a concert hut, and told him that the vehicle that was there was broken. Could he fix it? My father said, certainly not a problem. The German asked him, well, how long will it take? My father said, oh, a couple of days. Figuring that in a couple of days the German would take him back to the ghetto, he'd ask his friends who were mechanics how to fix it. The German said, I don't have a couple of days. You fix it now. Mm. So my father said, well, what seems to be the problem? Explain it to me. He says, well, when I drive it, there's a banging underneath my seat. I don't know what the problem is. My father said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to lay down on the ground, and you drive over top of me. Figuring if he squashed him by driving over top of him, that's a chance he had to take. Otherwise, he'd shoot him for lying. Mm. My father laid down on his back, and as the German drove over top of him, he realized that the universal joint was bad, and every time it made a revolution, it hit under the seat. <laughs> so he told the German, Oh, I see what the problem is. I will fix it. Now my father didn't know what kind of tools to ask for. He was no mechanic. So he went to the tool room and told the guys, hey, give me an adjustable wrench and a screwdriver. With an adjustable wrench and a screwdriver and his bare hands because he was so scared, he took the universal joint apart. In those days, they were bolted together Mm -hmm. and put everything in chronological order, took the biggest piece, went to the parts room and asked the guys to give him one of these. The guys realized that he had problems. They gave him the proper universal joint and tools, 
And he put everything in reverse order, went over to the German, told him, I've got it fixed, would you like to try it? The German got in the vehicle, drove it a couple of blocks, came back, said, it's perfect. You're the finest mechanic I've ever seen. You will now be the shop foreman. Hmm. And and here is a loaf of bread and some butter for you, hmm. for the family. My father refused the bread and butter because bringing that in meant smuggling. And for smuggling, they hung you. And I had to witness the hanging of an 18-year-old boy that got caught smuggling. Hmm. Everybody. Now, you have to explain him. that. I'm not understanding. If he gave him the loaf of bread and the butter, he couldn't take it home because of what? Why would he have to smuggle? He'd have to go by the guards coming into the ghetto. I see. So going right. by, they would search him. Mm-hmm. And if they found it on him, they would hang him. Hmm. So the German told him to get in the vehicle, the one that he had just fixed, and he drove him right to our house. And that night we had an extra ration of bread and some butter. Hmm. Wow. There were many children that got, during that selection that I was telling you about, many children got separated from their parents. Orphans in the ghetto were not allowed. So the Jewish community hid the children in a makeshift hospital, and they called it the Contagious Disease Unit. Mm. <laughs> the Lithuanians and Germans found out that the children were hidden. Somebody squealed. They came, they nailed the doors and windows shut, doused it with gasoline, and oh, burned wow. it to the ground with 180 children inside. While working at the airport, my father met a farmer that he had done some legal work for and he still was allowed to practice law. The farmer told him that they were killing the children in the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm. And if he could smuggle me out, or if we could smuggle out, he would try to save our lives by taking us to the country and try to find us a hiding place. Mm. Before that could happen, the Germans again came to the ghetto, and they said they wanted 5,000 people to be deported from Kovna, Lithuania, to Latvia and Estonia. The excuse was to make more living room in the ghetto, and that everybody would have more space. Well... They had already killed out of the 27,000 that were on Democratic Square. They had already killed 10,500. There was plenty of room. But they started running on the streets, and anybody that was in the street, they grabbed and pulled them for deportation. When they didn't make the numbers, they started going house to house to pull people out of their houses to be deported to the uh, uh, by trucks to Estonia. My uh, mother also worked at the airport as forced labor. Her job was to load and unload coal cars and help build the runway that they were trying to build for the airport. Hmm. If you didn't work fast enough, 
the German gods or Lithuanian gods, whichever one happened to be at the time, would beat you. My mother was hit with a rifle butt over her head. It split it open, and she required many stitches. Hmm. The doctor told her not to report for work for a couple of days till the split could congeal, you know, start healing somewhat. She was home. My grandparents were home for shift change, my uncles and an aunt. They came to our house. They grabbed us up and put us in line to be deported. A Jewish policeman that was a friend of my father's recognized me, grabbed me, pulled me out of line, and said, you and your mother go home. Daddy will be looking for you. My mother didn't want to leave her family, but I started crying that I wanted to go to my father. My mother and I are the only two that survived that selection out of the 5,000. Hmm. Two years ago, the record section was opened in, in Germany, Ausbaden, Germany, in a salt mine. They found the records called the International Tracing Service records that the Germans had a record on every single individual. Everything they did to them. Some 20 million records. Now, you're saying they had records of the, the atrocities that they had done to these people as well? They kept records of it? Yes, sir. Now, why? I, friend, I don't understand. What, what, what would be the point of that? The point was they were real proud of the work they did. <sighs> hmm. So, when they opened up those archives, in fact, you can go online and find ITS, International Tracing Service. It is now operated by the International Red Cross. One of the first scholars that was allowed to go in there was a friend of mine out of Atlanta, Georgia. And I asked him if perhaps he could look up my family. Originally he said he didn't have time, you know, I've got to study. But somehow something happened. When he went there, he went to look for my family's records, and he found the execution records of my grandparents and mailed them to me. Hmm. That's, That's amazing. That's part of the story. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned your sister. You said a six-month-old sister. She was six months old. Uh, while we were running with the Russians, she got hold of contaminated milk. Oh. And she died of poison, milk poisoning. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather took her away and buried her. I don't know where. You know, when when you guys are suffering through such atrocities like that, can you even really mourn um, the, the loss of a child. That is the reason that my grandfather would not let my mother go to a funeral or do anything else. He picked up the child, he wrapped her up, and and took her away. Hmm. Now, how how did you guys actually get to this point where you were in hiding? How were you able to um, transition 
to this in place. In the middle of the November night, my father had made arrangements with a farmer that he met at the airport. And there was a certain spot that we knew about that was a bridge was there. And my father cut the barbed wire under the bridge where the bridge was passing over the same street that the 10,500 were marched to their death at the Ninth Fort. And when we could no longer hear the cobblestones, the hobnails on the cobblestones from the guards walking, we knew he was the furthest point away. I ran across the street and hid. And after the guard made another round, my mother came out. And by touching the ground, we touched, and not a word was said. Mm. And then on the third round, my father came out. And again, we hugged each other, but we didn't say a word once we got reconnected. And my father's cousin hooked the wires back on the fence, on, on the barbed wire fence, so the Germans didn't know we escaped. We walked five blocks where the farmer was waiting for us for a wagon. It was market day, so it wasn't unusual to see a horse and wagon. I was hidden under straw that was in the back of the wagon. My mother sat next to the farmer with a scarf over her face, hiding her features, and my father walked the team until we came to Trakai, which was 40 kilometers from the ghetto. It was between Kovna and Wilnius, which is the capital of Lithuania now. And there, a Polish Catholic farmer by the name of Paskauskas offered to hide us. He was so poor that he had a one-room house, a dirt floor, not even a floor, no chimney, one window and one door. The mm. weather was so cold that he kept the sheep inside the house mm. to keep them from freezing. We had nothing wow. to give him, and he didn't ask for anything. He risked his, his wife's, and his 16-year-old son's lives to mm. save us. Yes, he did. And he really didn't have any place for you guys. So tell us about the potato hole or the, the hole where you and your family hid. In uh, the country, you store potatoes in deep shafts. They're just a plain straight hole down in the ground, like a root cellar only out in the field. Just a plain hole, five foot across and ten foot down. And that's where the potatoes were kept for the season. So uh, my father lowered himself into one of those holes and then started digging a long tunnel. Mm. It was a very small tunnel. You had to slither on your uh, stomach like a snake in order. And then once he dug the tunnel long enough, he started opening up a chamber. Ultimately, the chamber ended up... uh, nine foot by 12 foot and only four foot high. No lights. Mm-hmm. How, long, how long did it take him to do that? Three months. Wow. He dug one tunnel, then he dug the chamber, then he dug another escape tunnel to another potato hole in case somebody got on one end, hopefully we could scramble out of the other. Right. And, and in the meantime, 
had the the Nazis come to this farmhouse to look for anyone? Uh, yes, they did. The uh, rumor started that a attorney from Lithuania came to lead the partisans. The partisans were guerrilla fighters. And the way the original partisans, it's a Russian word, the way the original started is when the paratroopers had cut off the Russian retreat, some of those Russians took off into the woods through the cornfields, and they started guerrilla units. Ultimately, some Jews escaped from the ghetto, younger ones, and they also formed their own units. The Russians were also anti-Semitic. They didn't want Jews. Mm -hmm. And if they did accept a Jew, he had to bring his own weapons. Mm. So the Jews, the young Jewish uh, boys and girls, or young men and young women in their 18s and 20s, started their own uh, partisan units. Mm. Uh, When word spread that the uh, lawyer came to lead the partisans, the Germans sent out the comment car looking for us. Uh, By that time, we were already underground, and when they came and asked Mrs. Paskowskas, asked uh, if she knew any Jews or seen any Jews, she says, what are Jews? I don't know any Jews. Only my husband, my son, and I live here. So they looked around and left. Mm. Did they ever actually look into the potato hole? No, they never got that close. They were afraid because the potato hole was just on the edge of the woods. And once the Germans went in the woods, they didn't come out alive. Oh. So they were afraid to go into the woods uh, for fear of partisans. I see. Hmm. So it it was actually strategically placed then? Yes, it was. Mm. The area was... Uh, swarming with uh, partisans. And were there ever visits from any of those folks to the the farmhouse, from the partisans themselves? Uh, No. uh, My father and my mother's uncle, who was a farmer in the area, used to go out periodically at night, scrounge and beg for food for farmers way away. Mm. And they encountered a couple of times uh, partisan units and when they recognized each other, they notified the units where we were so they would stay away from that area and leave right. the farmer alone. Yeah, and, and that would definitely help because if they had come to this farmhouse and the Germans had heard that, they would have also um, come looking for you as well. That's correct because then they would have been out in the open. So tell us a little bit about what life was like in the hole. Well... Uh, for me, it wasn't too bad. I was uh, young, and I crawled around all day from one hole to the other. Uh, for six months, I didn't have a bath or a change of clothes. And my pastime was killing lice. Mm. Of course, we also had some friends. Our friends were field mice. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were a lot of field mice in the uh, potato hole because they also were hungry and they looked for shelter, and their shelter was a potato hole where they could also uh, try to get some grain or stuff that uh, from the field that uh, above. 
Mm. So uh, we had field mice as constant visitors. Now, it must uh, have been we, cold and, and dark. How how could you see? Uh, after you're in the dark for a while, your eyes dilate, your pupils dilate. You don't see like you do in the daylight, but you see enough to recognize who is there with you, and uh, especially by the voice and all, so you know who's who. Uh, we could not have any lights. There wasn't enough oxygen to supply for even lighting a candle or lighting a match. You lit a match, and it would go out. So uh, wow. there was no, uh, not sufficient air. So consequently, uh, we had no lights whatsoever. But our pupils dilated enough that we could see. And, of course, uh, the older individuals that remembered the good times they had and the mm-hmm. nice restaurants mm-hmm. they used to go to, they used to talk about food all day long. I was too young to have experienced any of that, so I didn't miss any of that. I missed chocolate because at one time I used to be, my father used to buy me, just like you have Cracker Jacks, we used to have a ball that's almost like a baseball and wrapped in silver tinfoil, and inside you'd break open the chocolate, you'd find a, a little prize. And I remember how I used to love to uh, get those uh, and eat the chocolate and then have that little prize that was inside. Mm. Uh, So that was the only thing I was thinking about, but they were thinking about all the good food they had, Uh, smoked turkey and smoked goose and uh, steaks and that. I think hunger bothered them more than it bothered me. Mm. I was satisfied eating sauerkraut and potatoes, and I still like sauerkraut and potatoes. (laughs) <laughs> now, was it cold there? Absolutely. Wow. We, uh, as a matter of fact, I lived. I had a down blanket, and I brought it with me. That's really? the one possession that I never let loose. Mm. I had uh, when we escaped from the Russians. I carried it on my back, and I brought it to the United States and had it on my bed until about a year ago when I took it to the museum and put it on display near the hiding place. Mm. And um, while while we're on the subject, too, of the dark, tell us a little bit about your father's watch. My my father used to race motorcycles uh, across Mm. country, and his one prized possession was a chronograph, a Swiss chronograph that had a rhodium dial now. Rhodium mm-hmm. is now not used because it was found that it caused cancer. But he had a rhodium dial on that watch, and what he used to do is mother and I used to huddle with him, and he'd take his hand and put it out from under the blanket, and the mice used to think it was a cat because a cat's eyes glow in the dark. <laughs> so they used to run around us, but not run on our face and all because of his watch. And I've got that on display at the museum as well. Awesome. <laughs> that is amazing. You know, it, it, it's an amazing story of survival. Um, you know, you say you survived on sauerkraut and potatoes, and... Um, and you guys were there for six months underground and hiding. 
Were you in and out, or were you always underground? Always underground. Uh, one time, Mrs. Paschkowskas, she liked me, and she came and got me and took me to the house and gave me something extra to eat. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things I distinctly remember, we had no toys. Mm-hmm. And the Paschkowskas used to kill one pig a year. They'd kill him, smoke him, cure him. And then the year and a half later, they'd have something to eat for the whole uh, year. So uh, she took the pig's bladder and made a balloon for me out of the mm. pig's bladder. She took a straw and blew it up after she killed it, uh, cleaned it, and made a balloon for me. And, and I don't know if, if you know, but parchment makes a lot of noise. And when the bladder dried, it became like parchment. And yeah. I, bounced, I bounced it. It made noise. So my father's cousin got so upset. You know, it, it, everybody's nerves were just raw. You couldn't say anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. He, he took a knife and put through it so that I wouldn't bounce it against the wall, wall mm-hmm. underneath. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, and in how, fact, you had mentioned Nancy Beasley. Yes. Nancy Beasley's father was also a farmer, and he killed a pig, and she brought me the bladder, and I fixed up that bladder just like Mrs. Paskowskas did for me, and I've got that at the new museum as well. Oh wow! You know, it's amazing. Um, how did everyone maintain their health, or did everyone stay healthy during that time? Uh. Actually, uh, no. My father had developed an abscess, and the country people, they have all sorts of remedies. And Mrs. Paskowskas gave him some tea leaves Mm -hmm. uh, or some kind of thing like that to put on his abscess. And would you know, in a couple of days, the abscess opened up and drained, Mm. and his pain went away. Uh, my mother, of course, she suffered very badly. Mm-hmm. She missed her family. Her family was taken away from her. Mm-hmm. And I think the only thing that kept her going was trying to protect me because she had just lost it. When mm-hmm. we came mm-hmm. to the United States, she had to have, uh, she was hospitalized on the seventh floor in the Medical College of Virginia, which was. Uh, uh, psych ward, and she was given oh. electric shock treatments oh, for no. months, mm. uh, trying to get her uh, mind so she could mm. accept uh, the laws that she had, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she suffered with it continuously uh, the last time. But once I got married, she she got a new type of medication that Dr. Silver, a friend of ours, prescribed to her. I think it was called Milltown. And uh, that seemed to have taken care of She didn't need any more shock treatments, and she started mending in a way. And when my children was born, she started accepting the situation. When we, we had a business, she was the cashier at the business. And all day long, she would write the word Mama on a pad. Hundreds mm. of times during the mm. day, she would just keep writing, Mama, 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 mm. Mama. 
Wow. Mm. You know, I have to ask you, I mean, because I just can't get it out of my head. Um, You guys were underground for so long. You had water. But but what did you do, I mean, for sanitation? I don't understand how someone can live underground for six months and, and not come up. We we had a bucket. Now, my father and my mother's uncle, who was a farmer in the area, and the farmers, his neighbors loved him. And they kind of looked after, after him. Mm. So the bread and sauerkraut that we had gotten to eat, we got uh, from some of the farmers that he had helped mm-hmm. when he was running a big farm of his own. He'd always help them out with seed or whatever they needed. He would help them. So at this point, they started helping him. So periodically, my father and he used to go far away so they couldn't be tracked back to us. Mm. And he, they used to go uh, beg for potatoes, uh, sauerkraut, and uh, black bread. Now, uh, for sanitation, we had a bucket. And... When Rexy, the German shepherd that was stayed around on top of where we were hiding like he was in the field, he was protecting us. If he would bark, we knew something was wrong. But as long as he was quiet because he was very friendly with us, then we knew everything was okay. My father used to take the bucket out, carry it into the woods, and bury the waste in the woods so people couldn't trace it back. Right. Okay. Yeah, that was another key thing that could have given you guys away. And it was just something that was just in my head and just trying to put it all together and understand how you all survived because it's it's just such an amazing tale. Um, Jay, you know, I don't know how much time you have, but we are about 15 minutes left in the show, but I can actually extend it if we need to. Could you talk some more? Well, what do you want me to talk about? Are you <laughs> we kidding? We just started on my life. <laughs> I know, I know. And um, I, I just, you know, I can't see myself closing up in, you know, the 13 minutes that, that is remaining. So I, I just want to keep it going. We've got plenty of content to make up the difference. But um, I, I just wanted to understand, too, about how you transition out because you've been so successful in your life. I mean, you didn't just come out of this and um, eke out an existence. You've been very successful. And um, I just want to understand some of the life lessons that were taught to you and um, what you learned is some, you must have learned some incredible values and morals too. And, um, you know, just from everything from loyalty to family um, to disciplines and just survival instinct in itself that have helped you along in life? Well, uh, let's start when I was 12 years old and came to the United States. I came to the United States, and at that time, the United States was not a very friendly country. They did not want foreigners. They did not want Holocaust survivors. In order to come to the United States, you had to have a sponsor. You had to go through all sorts of hoops. But in any case, we made it, and on June 12, 1947, I landed in Richmond with my parents. And as you had mentioned, my father cleaned bathrooms. My mother worked as a seamstress for Tollhammer's department store, 
and I hung out. Uh, I couldn't speak in English. The way I thought you spoke English was chew chiclish chewing gum and say, okay. Like right now, you say, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Well, in Munich, the GIs used to get chiclis in their seat rations. So all of them chewed gum, handsome-looking young men dressed in uniform, going down the street talking to each other, and all the time I'd hear, okay, okay, okay. So I assumed that's all you had to do to speak English is learn the word okay, and everybody knew what it meant. And my father and I used to have games. We'd walk down the street. My father and I were very close. And uh, we, we'd kind of know what we were talking about. We'd go down and say, okay, uh, and pretending to chew chiclis chewing gum. Well, come September, they enrolled me in Robert E. Lee School here in uh, Richmond. Mm. So I, I come to school. And they look at me and say, you're 12 years old. You belong in the sixth grade. Well, I had no education. I'd right. never been to school before. Only thing I knew was to count because I counted lice. Mm. And the challenge was every day to get more than the day before. Mm. So uh, I was good on that. My father taught me the multiplication and division table. So I come to school. They put me in the sixth grade. Uh, I do a good job in math. I'm an A student in math. History, I had just lived it. In those days, I don't know how old you are, but in those days, we used to have 16-millimeter projectors, and everybody would go to the auditorium. The whole school would go to the auditorium for general assembly, and we would watch paper. Jay, are you there? I'm unable to hear anything. Jay, are you there? Yeah, I lost you for a while. I don't know oh. what happened. Okay. I got, yeah. got a business signal all of a sudden, and I was offline. Oh, okay. Great, great. Yeah, I um, I don't know what happened, but it may have had something to do with me making the show a little bit longer. So we'll just go ahead and continue. And um, last you were talking about um, your mathematics and um, how you learned. Yeah, I was, uh, patriotism was the one thing, so I was good in history. Of course, I spoke six languages at the time, so I didn't have to take a foreign language. Well, make a long story call, uh, short, uh, come September, uh, I went in, and come June, when everybody does their thing, I passed math, I passed history, and what do you think happened when it came to English? <laughs> I would think you would have some problems. I did. I flunked. Wow. Uh, now so the teacher was really kind. She sent me to summer school. And she says, when you finish summer school, you come back to see me next September. Well, I flunked summer school. Summer school was over. I did what she said. She gave me a retest. She says, oh, you've improved. Well, I'm going to pass you on. So then they passed me on to middle school in those days. So I went to Robert, uh, I, I went to uh, Hill School. Well, what do you think happened in Hill School? Same story. Wow, but but let me ask a question. I'm still confused because you've been in the dark. You hadn't been to school. Where did you learn to write? Uh, in the sixth grade, they, in those days, we had to use a locker book. You know, I, I doubt it if you know locker, but everybody had to have a book, and there was a gentleman by the name of Locker that developed 
script writing. And they gave you a book, and they taught you had to duplicate the letters in that book. So you right. write a nice A, a nice B, mm-hmm. a nice C. Mm-hmm. And as I was learning to write in Laka and learning to read English, I was learning all that. I see. Hmm. Wow. And and I'm sure, too, for school, for you, was the most exciting thing in the world, to be able to, to be in a classroom with kids your age well, and to it, learn. It, it, uh, wait a minute now. Let's not touch <laughs> the issue. It wasn't that exciting. you got to remember, mm-hmm. I only had one pair of shoes, and they were ski boots. So they elected me to be the kicker for football. (laughs) But even then, there were bullies. Yeah, yeah. And I walked out in the yard, and of course, not being able to talk or anything, a bully started picking on me. Mm. Well, I decked him. Mm. And then ran like hell. (laughs) Because nobody would step beside me to, to protect me. I had to protect myself. Right. And I knew I had to protect myself. So when school was over, I ran home so nobody could follow me. I didn't tell my parents anything about it. They had other things to worry about. Came the next morning, I had to go to school. I came to school. A young man walked over to me. And uh, you're not familiar with Richmond, but we had an area in Richmond called Scotch Edition. And that's where the working class people lived, and they were all tough. And one of the guys came over to me, and he says, Jay, don't worry about it. Nobody will ever lay a hand on you again. We are going to protect you. And from that on, I never had any problems with anybody. Hmm. Now... You know, you you have your own business now. You've been very successful. Give us a quick, brief synopsis about some of these accomplishments, some of the challenges and hurdles that you got past in order to become the man that you are today. Because, um, and if you can um, get us to the point where you've um, been able to open this museum and tell us a short story about that. But let's transition from some of your accomplishments um, from college and thereafter. Well, I didn't graduate from college because my English wasn't good enough. I applied to uh, University of Richmond, but the dean told me my English wasn't good enough, so he sent me to the T.C. Williams College, which was a division of the University of Richmond, the professional school. And uh, there I studied accounting, and pretty soon I got involved in the business world, which took me to Montreal, Canada. And while I was in Canada, I uh, worked for a cousin of mine who manufactured ladies' nylons. We made the first seamless hose in Canada and then shipped them to the United States and in other places. So uh, after working for him for 30 days because I was technically inclined, I was running the machinery and all, then uh, I had to go get a work permit. I was still in the American Army. I was a reserve uh, in the reserves, and I used to cross the border into Vermont to serve my time, and I was instructing in Vermont while I was away from Richmond. 
So uh, I went into the Canadian official and uh, told him I wanted to get a work permit. And, of course, in those days I had a heavy accent. And he said, you Europeans are all alike. He didn't mean you Europeans. He meant you Jews. I knew exactly what he meant. Mm, mm-hmm. He says, you come run into the United States, you can't make a living, you come to Canada. Now, by that time, in the United States, I owned my own service station, mm. and I had a complete photography shop. I was also a photographer. And when he told me that, I told him to take my papers, and I'm not going to tell you on the radio what I said, but I told him, <laughs> put them where the sun don't shine. In the morning, I will be out of here, back to where I belong. And in the lobby, I had three dates with my wife. We just met. Uh, and we had three dates, and she had showed me how to get there. I walked out and told her, I'd like to marry you, but I'm leaving at 6.30 in the morning. I'm going to be on American soil. If you come with me, we'll get married, or maybe I'll come back, but I doubt it. She went home, packed her clothes. In July, we'll have been married 52 years. Wow. (laughs) That's an amazing story in itself. And, you know... You actually had a son of the people who had helped you um, came back and visit in the States. Well, what happened, in 1997, my father died at 86. Mm -hmm. When we came to the United States, and as soon as we made enough food to eat, in those days before the Cold War, the Russians had set up a business in New York. You could send money to their business in New York. They would take clothing or other stuff, make up a package, and ship it to whoever you wanted to in Russian territory. Mm. So my father used to send packages to the Paskowskas. They would take that stuff, sell it on the black market, and buy the things they really needed. Well, once the Cold War came up, Paskowskas was afraid to have our address in his home, and he used to raise bees. So he took our address and hid it in a beehive. Mm. Thirty years later, he was cleaning out the beehive, and he found our address. Oh, wow. He, He sent our... So he took our address, and he sent a letter to the address where we were no longer there. Mm -hmm. We had moved from that location. And he said, I'm well. I hope you're well. I hope God has been good to you. And be well. Bye. (laughs) So it was all written in Lithuanian. Well, the people that now lived in our previous location send a letter back to the post office. My wife used to pick up the company mail every day. She went into the post office to pick up the mail. And the mailman uh, that worked inside the post office came over to her and said, Mrs. Ibsen, this looks like the kind of letters that you folks get. Is this yours? And she recognized my father's name on the envelope. She says, yeah, it's my father-in-law. So she brought the letter to me and said, here, a letter came for Dad. I could no longer read Lithuanian. 
So now what I do? Well, we had previously a food festival at the, uh, not the Colors, I think where the Arthur Ashe Center is now, So, uh, which is here in Richmond. It's a big uh, hall. So we went to the food festival. I love international food and all that kind of stuff. I went to the food festival, and I saw a Lithuanian booth. So I figured if I call up the people that put up the food festival, they'll introduce me to a Lithuanian American who could read that letter for me. I called up the food festival. They said, we can't give you that information. I said, well, I'll tell you what. This is my name. This is who I am. Would you mind calling up the president of the Lithuanian Association, the woman that was in charge of the food festival, the and tell her, would she please call me if she would? Well, she was very kind. She's married to an Indian doctor that works at MCV. And she called me right away. Her name was Rita Gaytak. So Rita called me, and I told her what I had. She immediately came. At that time, I had just started the museum on Rosneath Road here in Richmond, a small five-room museum in back of our synagogue. And she came, she read the letter, told me what it is, and there was a telephone number there. So we called the telephone number, and I invited him to come to Richmond. And he told me he couldn't, and, you know, he was afraid. So I said, look, I'm going to send you some money. I'm going to send you tickets. You bring your son with you. I'm going to give you letters, and you show those letters wherever you stop, and they will help you get to the next stop, and I'll meet you at the airport. Well, finally, he agreed, and we uh, sent him the tickets and spending money on the way to get him here. And in those days, we didn't have too much security at the airport. And having been a pilot, since I was a pilot, I knew everybody at Bird International. And I asked him if I could put out a red carpet for the airplane when he'd land so he could come off of the red carpet. And uh, they let me. So uh, when the airplane landed, we rolled out the red carpet, and he and his son, everybody on the plane thought there was some dignitary. In fact, there was one of them <laughs> that was from city council, and he thought the red carpet was for him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then... Uh, we uh, brought him to my home. Mm -hmm. uh, we took him to Southern States. We got him uh, seed, and uh, he looked at a throw net. Uh, so the throw net with that, he could catch a lot of fish because the lake was right on his property. So I got him the throw net, and while I was looking, he kept looking and going over to a chainsaw. Every time I turned around, he was going over to the chainsaw. I asked him, what's with the chainsaw? He says, can you imagine? If I had a chainsaw, I could cut wood. I could sell that wood. I could make a living. So I bought him the chainsaw. And when I bought him the chainsaw, he wouldn't let it out of his hand. He took it to the to my guest room, and he slept with the chainsaw. He took it <laughs> apart and kept it right beside him. <laughs> when it was time for him to go back, he wouldn't put that chainsaw in luggage. He carried it on the plane. And when wow. it came to customs, 
They ask him, what do they have in that box? He said, it's a chainsaw and you can't have it. <laughs> hmm. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'm sure he really appreciated that gift. It was the perfect gift for him. And, and yes, it's funny it how... It's funny how so many things can become uh, a cherished memory and um, the smallest things and the things that mean the most to you are the things that are, are given to you, too, by people who had a general a general interest in your own, you know, welfare and being. And um, that, of course, is the, the best kind. Um, there is one little story that um, we did skip over, um, and this is um, your mother sewed her father's rubles onto the buttons of her sweater and brought them to America? Tell us about that and what that meant to her. Well, actually, it wasn't just bringing them to America. These were the same ones that we escaped from the ghetto with. Mm. And uh, one night uh, before my father fixed the potato hole, Mrs. Paskowskas picked up the sweater. She says, my God, it's heavy. What have you got covered in there? And my mother whispered to me immediately. She says, say you're cold. Pick up the sweater and wrap yourself up in it. And I picked up the sweater and wrapped myself up in it. And no question was ever raised about the sweater again. And the buttons were with those coins were sewn in there in case of emergency. Mm. We should be able to buy our lives with those coins. And mm. I've got them on display in the museum as well. Wow. So th- this was actually knitted into the sweater. It was. Uh, finally, we, we took them, well, many years ago, the sweater uh, got uh, a little worn. My mother took it out and had the, uh, in the safety deposit box, they had the coins. But I took it out of the safety deposit box and put it on an alarm alarm and put them on display in the uh, museum. And how many coins are we talking about? Uh, Nine, I believe it is. Wow. Yeah, that would have been very heavy. Yeah, there were $10 rubles uh, and a couple of American. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Now... You told us about your challenges that you had with your education and your learning, but and still you became a pilot, and yes. <laughs> you also were the um, Virginia Defense Force Aviation Brigade commander from 1988 to 1992. Right. Tell us how- I also had uh, operated a Hopewell Airport and taught flying for a while, um, rated commercial, single multi-engine land and sea, single pilot, about 135, and instruments. Hmm. It's just amazing. Just amazing. Well, when, you, when you've got the will, you mm-hmm. can do it. Yeah. And, and this is what I was talking about earlier. I mean, I can't imagine a challenge that would be in front of you that you would not persist until you were able to to defeat it because of all that you've already have gone through in your life. You came up as a child, you know, just going through some some terrible circumstances and making the most out of them. Tell us about how that has impacted your life, and uh, you must have your own philosophy of how to go about um, living and succeeding and, you know, being the person that you 
field that you need to be in. I, I, I just could never accept being second best. I felt I was as good as anybody else. Mm-hmm. Consequently, I, I drove to be as good as anybody else, and most of the time that didn't satisfy me. I had to be better than somebody else. Mm-hmm. And in the military, I took every opportunity to get an education as well as I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Once I got out of that, Wherever there was a challenge, I either taught myself or find somebody that could tell me what to do, and I kept pushing until I got to the top. If I started somewhere, uh, I started as a private, I ended up as a colonel. Mm-hmm. I started uh, a job, then I had to do it as good or better than anybody else did. And that's been all the time. Uh, whatever is challenged for me, I have to overcome adversity. Hmm. And again, it's just been an awesome story. Um, and tell us about, were there any challenges for you to actually start this museum? And um, you had to get some, some very um, top-level people involved in this. Um, once they heard your story, was this um, a, a difficult task for you? Well, actually, to be honest with you, I didn't want to do the museum. Mm. Uh, having been in business, I didn't like competition because the more competition you had, the harder you had to work. So uh, <laughs> I went, uh, in fact, my father's philosophy was when somebody would ask him how business was, he says, you know, it's kind of tough out there. Because if you told everybody it was good, then your competitors would have to work harder. But if you told them that you were having a hard time, then they would say, well, oh, He's having a hard time. I guess it's okay then that I'm not doing so well. <laughs> so uh, when it came time uh, to build, uh, my friends came to me and said, Jay, let's build a museum. I said, you're crazy. What do we need a museum for? Washington is phenomenal. We don't mm-hmm. need a museum in Richmond. It's only two hours from Washington. They said, yeah, but you know, if you built a museum, first of all, you wouldn't have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, and be somewhere in Powhatan or Midlothian to give a lecture for the 8 o'clock class. They would come to you. Mm-hmm. Well, that was enticing because I was going around to schools early in the morning before work and give a lecture and then go to work. Mm. So I said, but I don't want to be a competitor to Washington, so I went to Washington with them. Uh, Al Rosenbaum was one of my uh, friends, and Mark Feather. Al Rosenbaum was a skilled artist and businessman. He he did a tremendous amount of metal sculpture and all that kind of stuff. And Mark Feather is a publisher of Richmond Parents and 50 Plus. Mm. Uh, so we went to Washington, and when we started talking to them, they uh, realized that there was a picture in their archives of me in line to be deported for execution with my grandfather and mother. Really? So they said, you know, yours would be the ideal story to tell in a museum. Why don't you build a museum? And I said, well, you know, I only have a few artifacts that I brought with me and all that. They said, well, you know, if you build a museum, we've got some cobblestones from the Warsaw Ghetto that we've got in storage. We'll give them to you to put in your museum. 
Mm. And we've got railroad tracks from the gas chambers of Treblinka. I mm. said, oh, my goodness, with those, that would really be something for people to be able to see history. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I think I'll do it. Uh, when I got back to Richmond, I called up one of my customers. I used to sell auto parts to, for 18-wheelers and uh, all the big uh, freight carriers. Now UPS bought one of mine. It used to be overnight. So I called him up, and I said, look, I've got in Baltimore some cobblestones and railroad tracks. I don't have much money. Uh, what are you going to charge me to pick it up? He said, give me the address. I gave him the address. They picked it up, brought it back, and didn't charge me anything. Wow. And that's how we started the museum. Hmm. Now, was, was the museum um, a structure that was built or uh, an already um, structure that was in place that you guys just occupied and brought things in? No, no. It was five small classrooms from in back of my synagogue. It was a classrooms. Mm. And I converted them into the museum. I see. Wow. And then traffic, I I, I built everything out of my life experience, mm-hmm. all with volunteers. I directed it. Al was the art master, and uh, we did it with our own hands and volunteers. We didn't have any money. Mm. And uh, I built structures. I didn't put up uh, the pictures I put up or pictures I brought over from Europe. Mm -hmm. And artifacts that I brought because I lived it all. And after a while, we started having so much traffic that we couldn't accommodate the people there. So I started looking for a place. And miraculously, the state had a warehouse. It's a long story. We could be here for hours. And I talked. (laughs) Uh, I managed to talk the state out of the warehouse to build a museum. <laughs> I'm now, getting the feeling, sir, you're quite the negotiator as well as a very savvy businessman as well. Well, it, it worked out. The museum is, we've got two exhibits that are, we're the only ones in the whole world that have two two exhibits like this. One of them, we're the only one that has the full-size Nuremberg courtroom in operation here in Richmond. No other museum in the world has it. Not even Nuremberg. Right now, I started hearing, because people have started passing word, that they are starting to rebuild that courtroom for tourist attraction in Nuremberg, and I already have it. Wow. The the other part that I have is a full-size synagogue, a complete reproduction of the exact synagogue that my father prayed in in Covenant, Lithuania. Looks like a Middle Eastern masterpiece. Wow. Amazing. You know, Jay, it's an, I am, you know, my wife and I, we vacation in Virginia Beach quite a bit, and uh, we pass Richmond, so... I I really, really cannot wait to be able to drop by there and see this from my own eyes. And tell everyone exactly where the museum is and um, also other contact information where they can find out more about the museum and about you and your story. Well, the museum is at Chaco Bottom, which is now being revitalized. 
It's uh, phenomenal. It's at 2000 East Kerry Street, right by the canal walk, where we have a beautiful canal, and actually people take boat rides. And you can see it from I-95. Mm. Uh, when you're coming, uh, going north on I-95, if you look over, you can actually see our building and the Virginia Holocaust Museum. Uh, if you go uh, south, you take exit 74B, and within two minutes, you're at our museum. Uh, our website is, uh, of course, all of them start with www. It's VA hyphen, not underscore, hyphen, holocaust, H-O-L-O-C-A-U-S-T, dot com. And you can find all the information on it. Uh, we give guided tours for... Uh, big groups, school groups. We also have audio tours for individuals that come in where they can either take it on a CD player, an iPod, or the new mini-pod uh, that, they, that they have. Uh, or we have booklets that will guide you through the museum. Uh, I would, uh, If you're a uh, serious student, I would leave about two and a half hours for the tour. And part of the tour, of course, is going through a recreation of my hiding place where you get to escape from the ghetto and crawl on your hands and knees into our hiding place. The hiding place is illuminated here where we didn't have it illuminated, and the tunnels are bigger than what we had. We had to slither, but knowing that everybody is a little bit heavier than we used to be, then I have uh, made the tunnels larger. We are also 100%, we are the only one, I've been told, also in the area that's 100% handicapped accessible. Oh, that's great. That's great. So everyone gets an opportunity to actually experience this and be able to, you know, submerge themselves in this um, this um, historic story. Right. People, uh, people in wheelchairs can wheel through the whole museum I've built a special tunnel so through a window they can see the hiding place and they mm -hmm. can go through escape, uh, the escape hole that I have made from escaping from the ghetto. I've made it so that it's the same size as uh, a wheelchair-bound person. So a wheelchair-bound person can escape through the uh, barbed wire fence and then they can take the tunnel that's made especially for handicapped and they can look through a window into the hiding place and those that are capable of course crawl on their hands and knees and um i'm going to have our producer donna hardeman come on as well and um you guys can just talk a little bit about what when you guys met um you, you were at a book signing for um the book izzy's fire and tell us a little bit more about that and and donna you just jump in whenever you feel Michael, actually, um, we had gone to the museum as a family. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, and we were there pretty late, and we went into the gift shop um, almost at closing. And I purchased the book, and uh, I was blessed enough to have him come down and sign it, and just have a little conversation with me. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did get to experience the museum, and it's amazing. I mean, anybody that can come down and see it, it's it's just amazing. It's awesome and, and emotional, all of the above. And, and Jay, do you remember? We also right now have uh, 
Pope John II, who was just beautified uh, yesterday. Mm. We have a full exhibit on the second floor that we're going to have for another 30 days about his life and relationship with his uh, Jewish friends in Poland. Oh, great. And, you know, there's also um, a, a YouTube video as well of you. Now, I, I don't know the title of it, but how can people just find that YouTube video? Would it just be to um, Google your name, or how does that come up? I think that's about it, because to be honest with you, there's a lot of uh, footage out. I don't recall having seen the YouTube video mm-hmm. uh, somebody made, but uh, if you Google my name, everything uh, keeps coming up. My grandchildren shocked me one day. She says, Grandpa, I just by accident Googled your name, and there's so much information, I had to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, Jay Ibsen, you are a part of history, and um, your story is an amazing story, and people can find out even more by visiting the museum, checking out your website, as well as your... um, the story is told by your your mother, I believe. Is is his fire? Is his fire is uh, my mother telling the story based on Nancy Beasley when she wrote it. She had my father's manuscript. Uh, one day, my father and I used to run the business together. I had a separate business, and then we combined and we ran the business together. And one day, a salesman came in and he says, uh, Jay. Your father just retired, and he said, you're the boss. I said, what do you mean I'm the boss? My father's the boss. I'm just the outside salesman and general manager. He says, no, 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 he just retired. You're now the boss. So I go into my father's office. I said, what gives? He says, well, time for me to retire. I said, no, you won't. I said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to put a tape recorder on your desk tomorrow morning, whenever you feel like coming in. You just sit down and start talking. It doesn't matter which way or what you say. I want you to start at the beginning and just start telling the story of your life all the way through. He made 22 tapes. Mm. I then took those tapes, and uh, in those days they had come up with an Apple computer, Apple 3E, I think it was. I hired a uh, girl, with, uh, and I put a computer in the office, and I hired her to transcribe the tapes and then sort them in date order. And when uh, after she did it, I had a manuscript. I gave Nancy that manuscript. Nancy and I met by accident. She mm. came to a Holocaust Remembrance Program, and we started talking, and she said, well, I'd like to write a book. So I gave her the manuscript, and she and my mother would have lunch every single day and they would relive all that stuff. Wow. And that's how the book came about. Wow. And, and if awesome. I can say if I can say I did read the book and it took me two days, I could not put it down. Mm. I really couldn't put it down. Nancy Only when is I had the opportunity. Really good yes, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, Jay, it's not often that I um take the time out to extend a show like this. My show is generally an hour because it's a podcast and it sort of fits that format. But, you know, I, I'm just so happy that I did take the time to um, add this extra 30 minutes. And I really appreciate you taking time out as well to, you know, be able to go ahead and, and share some more with us. And um, we really look forward to uh, 
maybe even having you again next year because of the um, the actual time, too, of it actually being after this um, special holiday of remembrance and um, you being able to um, be on the show. I really appreciate that because it was very timely as well. And I just want to thank you um, for the time you've spent with us as well as sharing your story. And um, we look forward to hearing from you again very soon. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. And if you uh, happen to come through the uh, area and you stop, most chances are that I will be there. Or if not, give me a call ahead of time and I'll make sure that I'm there. Awesome. I would love to meet you and um, experience the museum with you. And um, we thank you once again and um, just peace and blessings. And we thank you again for showing up. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I want to take a moment to talk to you about a heinous crime against humanity that plagues our nation. And yes, believe it or not, communities just like yours. Here's something you can do today to lend your support in the fight against human trafficking, also known as modern slavery. For example, Tanya was only 11 when she was forced to use her body for her own survival and the perverse desires of others. Now 18, Tanya knows no other life. She can't even remember when she was able to choose how she wanted to dress. Tanya dreams of being a teacher one day, and with the help of Bridge to Freedom programs and your support, they can empower her and others like her to move from surviving to thriving. You can make a huge difference in the life of a survivor this year through your support and donations to Bridge to Freedom Foundation. Bridge to Freedom is a nonprofit organization that provides aid to survivors of slavery who now live in the U.S., such as former child soldiers and victims of sex trafficking and forced labor. The cornerstone of Bridge to Freedom's work is personal and professional development to help survivors adapt and thrive in their new lives and communities and find work to support themselves. The Bridge to Freedom Foundation needs your support to help people just like Tanya. They need your urgent action to ensure that they can continue to provide clothing and health and beauty services to these survivors. These are not only important for rebuilding self-esteem, but are crucial to finding employment. They're also in great need of storage containers and clothing racks to organize and store donations. While donations of needed items are vital, one sure thing that will help to stop the spread of this injustice and prevent it from thriving undetected is educating yourselves about human trafficking or slavery and knowing the signs and the proper authorities to contact if you become aware of a victim in crisis. Find out more at bridgetofreedomfoundation.org or if you have a reason to suspect that someone may be a victim of human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline on 1-888-373-7888. Multilingual call specialists are on standby 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All calls are confidential. Love Talk Radio.
got something to say. But uh, not this station right here. We don't just got something to say, y'all. Nah, nah, nah.